The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Last week, on the teaching of dependent origination or dependent co- codependent arising. So I'll begin with a little recap. First of all, I guess I'll tell you, since you all have these in front of you and are very curious about them, one is a, is a traditional image of, from the Tibetan tradition, um, and I'll get into that later. Um, and what we'll be mainly kind of working from uh, are these words that describe uh, dependent arising. So that's the other handout. So codependent origination or arising was one of the Buddha's insights into the processes that human beings are subject to both within our own psychophysical inner worlds and our interactions with the outer worlds. So this teaching describes a set of relationships among the conditions and causes and effects of patterns and thoughts and actions of our lives. And these relationships affect and depend on each other. So the relationships are also, in what the Buddha passed along, dynamic and fluid. So that's really good news because that means in this whole matrix of human experiences there are opportunities for choice and transformation. And again as a recap, but I think it's really quite notable that this was an unprecedented view of human life both psychologically and philosophically and practically. The Buddha said that this insight was one of the two central insights he awakened to, and of course his name means the awake awake one. And the other one was the Four Noble Truths. And these teachings um, work together and complement each other. Um, The Buddha famously said, I teach one thing and one thing only, and that's suffering and the end of suffering. Suffering, again, as a recap, is a is a kind of word that got translated in the late 19th century by people who were first translating Buddhist texts into English and it kind of stuck, although it, it has a kind of a connotation that um, maybe seems a little heavy for some people. It's uh, also called unsatisfactoriness. Um, so, and in a way, these two central insights he has are very short, actually, um, in the text as they come down to us. The shortest one of um, dependent origination is only like a couple of paragraphs, maybe a half a page or a third of a page. But then there's the whole encyclopedia of the Pali Canon, which goes into the practices. He did a lot more teaching, but this was like the kind of condensation. This is the pithy stuff. Uh, then there are a lot of ways to, to make this work in our lives. And so that's why we come together and share uh, our practice and why we also practice by ourselves because each one of us is the one who ultimately has the responsibility to do this. So a codependent origination offers a psychological um, portrait or description of our personal worlds and how they're put together moment by moment. And so in that way, it's kind of a large view, but also an up-close view. We used the traditional name and model last week of um, the wheel of dependent origination, and I talked about those teachings and mentioning briefly how that implies this two-dimensional wheel, or even as an analogy in words, it it implies a kind of a linear um, circle that doesn't really see anywhere where there's a break in it. Although the teachings certainly do outline that, and that's what we'll be going over a little bit tonight. But the wheel analogy is easy to remember, and, um, 
and it, um, it as the the um, the other analogy we mentioned, the gyroscope hadn't been wasn't around at the time of the Buddha, then it 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 worked for people to remember it, especially in the very early days, because not, nothing was written down, so there weren't actually any texts. <clears throat> um, it was all an oral teaching. So images and anal- analogous teachings were very helpful to help people remember things. So we also mentioned that many commentaries on the teaching, uh, including modern ones, see the description as see this teaching as a description of our moment-to-moment experience of arising and ceasing. And maybe we did practice a little bit tonight with that, like how many times things come up, even when we just have the intention to sit down and watch breathing. Things are always changing and moving and coming up in our life. Um, A lot of times it's really dramatic, and then a lot of times it's really not so dramatic. So some commentators, and especially I recall the, um, the Thai meditation master, Buddha Dasa, characterized dependent origination as the radiant wheel. It put, because he emphasizes in some of his teachings that it points to the many opportunities when we can stop this kind of existential angst or this, this what, where we don't have to add anything to the constant changing um, circumstances which can be nice or not nice in our lives. In other words, our sense of unsatisfactoriness or anguish. So, um, cause and effect are part of the teaching, however not in a simple way. And the wheel kind of um, analogy tends to make it seem like it's just cause and effect. And some traditional Buddhism is such a big uh, field and such a big tent, if you will, that there are lots of different views within it. And some of the views um, see it as cause and effect, very simply. But the way I understand it, the Buddha spoke of conditions being present for this to arise not that this always causes that. So all the conditions have to be here. And this, this model looks at some of the conditions that we can have direct access to and therefore that we can influence in certain ways. So for example, um, if the temperature is low enough and the clouds are coming from the northwest and if the latitude is high enough, it might snow. It, even it could be there's a good chance that it will snow, but it doesn't always happen that way. It doesn't always snow. And if one of these conditions changed, say the clouds came from the south, it mightn't snow at all. So there are conditions that have to come together and they influence each other. But it's not just if this, then that. Um, So this arising, that arises, and this ceasing, that ceases, holds both the cause and effect and the sense of many conditions coming together. So both these models, though, the more traditional one and the moment-by-moment one, Um, recognize that many of the conditions described are built into us. So we have hardwired birth and death. Um, We have consciousness and the sense bases, the six senses, are also built into us. And the fact that we're we're material creatures and we live in a material world, we're embodied and the world has a certain bodiness and material to it, That's hardwired. And so is the fact that we have the possibilities as humans of awareness and attention, of noticing our intentions, and therefore making choices. So, and it's also clear that most of us would call some of these conditions better than others. 
We don't like to be cold. We don't like to be hungry. That's natural. And on to more complex psychological states that we don't like. We like being at ease within ourselves and in our material world. And we also like being with ease with others. But reality has an uneven nature. It has a mix of things that we like and some that we don't like. So the Buddha recognized this about reality and that's what he built into this teaching. Well, it's nice if uh, things are always this way, um, but what about when they change and they're not that way anymore? How do we meet that? How do we live with that? So tonight we'll look together and highlight a few aspects of dependent origination and um, understanding that it can be uh, a very profound teaching and we're just, I'm just had a couple of nights and I uh, it's a beautiful teaching and I just felt called to give a little um, a little overview of it but we won't get into all the the depths of it however it's possible to get into those uh, on your own and We'll get to later how to do that. So this uh, graphically expanded, these graphically expanded words, which I have my copies all uh, marked up, because as you can even see, uh, everything goes, everything touches everything else, not every single thing in this wheel or this, this circle, but but, but there's a lot of relations. So even though the things are called one thing and then another thing, activity and consciousness say, they relate to each other. They are conditions for each other, but they, it doesn't have to be just the next door um, word or um, state that's a condition. They relate across the circle too. <clears throat> they tend to come in clusters, etc. So this has some different terms added to it than the traditional um, than the traditional terms for dependent origination, uh, and I do have a sheet for those. Uh, I didn't want to pass that out because we don't have time to do it all tonight. But for those who are interested, I'm happy to give you a sheet of those too. I have that. Um, so that gives it a different linguistic frame and maybe some more nuances and possibilities for us. I like looking at the translations of different, uh, uh, different ways of expressing these teachings. So and I, I particularly like this graphic and chose it because of how the letters, because they're kind of expanded, and how they suggest movement. So they reach in and out of the circle and they have a little, they have a little uh, movement to them in my eyes. So holding the sheet in a landscape view and beginning with, uh, where do we begin here? Um, confusion on the right-hand side. So if you hold the sheet like this and you have confusion to the right-hand side. Um, oh, I, I, no, I, I guess I just guessed. And so could, you, could we share? Could, could people share with the ones I have? Oh, it's okay. I just, uh, I didn't know how many people would come, so I just... I'm not sure how to... Oh, there they are. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you. So does anyone else, does anyone else have both sheets? Uh, With the amazing painting? That's like one of the best that I could for reproducted, uh, that I could get off the web. Uh, it's not great reproduction, but uh, I think it works clearly enough. Anyway, so looking at this sheet of, uh, of linguistic description and with the landscape view with confusion to the top right. So beginning with confusion or ignorance, as it's often called, traditionally called, is simply being unaware of what's moving us or motivating us as we go through our moments, our days, our lives. It can take many forms, but a couple of highlights of it, of these couple of things it could be, is this kind of 
vague, what's it all about background confusion, which may get expressed sometimes like, well, what am I doing here? Why am I, why am I, you know, what's going on about life (laughs) anyway? um, And this can actually often be invisible to us. We may not even know we have this sense because we, we can be very focused as human beings and we tend to do that we're very habitual creatures, we get in our habits, etc. But I think people who come to meditation centers um, or who are looking for any kind of other than the material world and the received uh, ordinary wisdom of life uh, have some kind of question like this. In Stephen Batchelor's characterization, He's a wonderful Buddhist writer and teacher, in my view. It can be, this can even be a misconstruing of life as a whole, this confusion or ignorance. So that it's an imaginary view that our lives should be other than they are. And actually, of course, advertising is how this works on this idea. You know, we are we directly appeal to that we need this car or we need this toothpaste or whatever it is in order that our lives will be perfect or at least better, you know. This is what kind of like keeps this cycle spinning. Like it's really the squirrel in the cage, this confusion like. So from that there is, there is a, a kind of a conditioning that this confusion conditions a kind of an activity. Although we're also hardwired for activity. As infants we start reaching out and moving. Uh, that's, that's the way we are. So that's fine. But th- this activity in terms of dependent origination includes mental and physical activities and intentions. In the classical form it's called formations um, or fashioning. And here is where with activities we start to form tendencies and even as children when we're not aware of why or how we're doing activities. I'm sure we've all had this experience of just doing something kind of, say, do something mindlessly. Consciousness, which is the next one, so activities, um, just the fact of moving around and playing with the material world tends to bring up some kind of an awareness. And in this model, consciousness is a sense of awareness of what comes through our sense doors, particularly. But it can also include a general cast of mind, a kind of a lower high tone of mind or a color of mind, kind of how we feel. Consciousness is very interactive. It also its um, forms and shapes what comes into us through our sense doors. When we hear something, uh, consciousness can kind of move that in one direction or another. It's also being shaped by what comes in. So then the next one is embodied personality or traditionally called name and form, nama-rupa. And first of all, it's our own body and the gestalt or the mental attitudes and personality we carry with our body. It's also all material form, the forces and the forces of, say, gravity and light and dark and the elements and, and how we relate to these. Here our minds shape the inner landscape, condition what thoughts and feelings will arrive next and begin to create a sense of self. So consciousness and embodied personality always work together and are are always changing according to what we meet. We're constantly forming and reforming our worlds on subtle levels that we're, because we're ignorant or confused, not aware of. So the value of mindfulness of letting ourselves slow down and settle down is that we can see these uh, processes at work. We can see how the dynamic actually works in this way. And in all three of these, activity, consciousness, and embodied personality, when we're mindfully aware, there are openings for transformation. So the next one is called sensory experience here. 
So that's a meeting of the inner and outer worlds. Um, It's called sense doors or the sense bases traditionally. And on a simple level, it just outlines that fact that we make sense of the world, we know the world through our bodily senses, make sense of it with the mind, our minds, which is a sense door, works with the other senses. So, for example, if we don't, if we didn't have the senses, we didn't have a sense, we'd have to kind of learn how to, um, how to make sense of the world. Just our mind wouldn't do it. If we're born blind and then have, and this has actually happened to many people, there are studies of this and stories about this, and then we have an operation to restore sight, it's like this big confusion of what's out there. We have to learn, like children have to learn, when they, you know, what is all around us? You know, we just aren't born in, born knowing that um, I'm a person and uh, I have a body. And I mean, did you ever watch infants play with their fingers and toes? I mean, it's just like, <laughs> it's, uh, we're finding out these things. So if we don't have one of the senses, we, comp- we compensate for it. If we're, or this happened with deaf people too. And there are very moving stories about this from Helen Keller, who's a great, wonderful book, My Life. And Oliver Sacks has a number of books on these mental phenomena and how they work with people who have these situations. But on a more complex level with the sensory experience, we can work with our mind as a sense door. And this one's like a little harder usually for people to relate to as um, at first, but when we start working with this, we can see that this produces thoughts like our eyes produce images. That's just the way we are. We're just built that way. Thoughts keep arising from our stored experiences and interacting with the outer world. There's that interaction that goes on all the time. One of my teachers had this little analogy that um, our brains keep producing thoughts like our stomachs keep producing stomach acid. You know, it's just like, it's it's just the way it is. That's what we do. Um, So the next point uh, in this origination conditions is impact or contact. And this is the point where the outer world can give rise, or our inner world too, to emotions, thoughts, patterns of reactivity. And part of this is hardwired. We react to fire or hot surfaces because to do so, we need, we, to survive, we need to do so. We just withdraw our hand. Um, but we can practice with the senses and contact. <clears throat> In other words, where they meet each other by remembering, and this is uh, one from from the Buddhist texts, one of his teachings. When seeing, just see. When tasting, just taste. It's, it's easier to do this when you, I mean, you can do it at, at any time if you really sit down and focus on that. Keep a strong intention to just do that when, when sight arises or sound arises. Just the hearing without having to know the meaning of the sound or putting any interpretation or um, or name on it. That's a different thing than sound itself. When the bell rings, just that sound, we can feel it go through our body without even calling it bell in our heads. Um, in other words, being mindful in that moment of what that simple thing is and then not putting anything on top of it. So it's easiest to try this with neutral objects such as a bell ringing or, or in sight looking at something like a door or a window that doesn't have a strong feeling charge, that doesn't start mental tapes playing. So the contact, as I said, can give rise to uh, the next one, can, can condition mood or feeling tone. And this is a really considered classically and today an important transportation, tran, uh, tran, transformation point in dependent arising. Um, 
because we tend to identify with the pleasant or unpleasant charges of experience and overlook entirely the neutral charge. And I mentioned these briefly last week, that feeling tone we have, the sense of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, that every impact, every contact, will carry one of these charges. This is often why people feel like breath meditation, it's so neutral, we get bored, we overlook it, and we get, then we get distracted and move on. We're looking to our thought trains or, or other things, or some noise comes along, and, you know, it breaks the, the neutrality. <clears throat> so being mindful of the actual flavor, that flavor in our body and in our minds, Uh, the energetic feeling of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, um, is, can be enough to stop this identification with these feelings, with the sense that, oh, it's unpleasant, and then, then the next one's going to come in, pushing it away, or pleasant, keeping it close. So some, um, Some teachers say with long-established patterns, you can use the phrase, nothing special. So when you're having a pleasant experience, you can enjoy that pleasant experience, and yet you don't have to identify with it. So if you're eating ice cream, you can notice that it's pleasant, pleasant, you're enjoying it, but nothing special. It's just an experience. Um... So that can be useful because the, this mood conditions craving. So there's a tendency to go in, in the human dynamic on automatic to go from feeling something, not being aware whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, and then going into over a little more. And craving, um, in the Buddhist terms, also means craving something nice or also aversion, pushing something away, craving for something to end that's not pleasant or not nice. This pleasant, pleasant, is so pleasant, I'll dish up another scoop of ice cream. So sometimes this is accompanied by the thought, just a little one. But but often these are really uh, almost automatic behaviors, when people get in habits of doing things, which can lead even to addictions. And I'll mention um, a reference to that a little bit later when we get into actual clinging. I think craving doesn't need a lot of explanation. I'm sure we can all recall what craving something feels like. It helps to remember that craving is a tendency, a movement toward but that we can stop that momentum. We can, when we're mindful, we can feel that complex, it's almost a bodily itch. I mean, we can feel the energy of it. And we can, we can see the intention forming in our mind to get up and do something about it. Get that other scoop of ice cream, for example. <clears throat> and we can say, we can identify this, and sometimes people find it helpful to actually use these terms and note that it's craving and say that I'm craving something, uh, and maybe we'll scoop it anyway. Um, that's fine. There's no need to um, pile any guilt on that. This is all just a practice, and habits are very difficult to break. They're also somewhat difficult to establish, but I'm sure many of you have heard this. Um, I don't know what this is exactly. I think it's a factoid that I read or heard a long time ago, but um, it's that when you... that making a habit, um, forming a habit, takes like a month, and breaking a habit takes a year or something like that. I mean, I may get that wrong. I'm not so good at remembering those things. But anyway, there is a kind. They have done research that um, that it's easier to form habits than it is to break habits. 
But in these practices, it's really helpful to remember that we don't need to add anything on top of it. We're just letting that mindful, non-judgmental awareness be present. It's always there in us, but we're just sort of uncovering it. We're allowing it to exist along with the rest of our lives. So clinging is craving gone to the next level. That's when it starts to get to be a fixation. Um, you know, it's, I'm just sticking with this really simple example, but, but um, when, that's, when the second scoop isn't enough, and we go to the third. So these are very closely aligned to feeling, tone, and craving. In fact, um, all of these from, from contact through becoming are very closely related to each other. And it's not like they just go in one way. They move back and forth with each other too. And they touch, they touch other points as well. But clinging um, can be difficult to recognize in our psychological patterns of reactivity. It's maybe easier with ice cream. It's fairly easy maybe in relation to outside objects. But in our own psychological patterns, clinging is a little more difficult to tune into. So it may take some reflection. But just working with simple outside objects, what, uh, what we don't like and what we go around the block to avoid, we'll take extra steps to avoid it. Just reflecting how often do we do that. I mean, I, I remember at a time... Um, when I first started working with this, that I noticed that I always would drive to the edge, and and I noticed that I'm really not alone in this, would drive to the edge of the speed bumps because I didn't like going over that bump and I didn't like slowing down. So (laughs) I just noticed that until until that pattern was um, no longer there. And that's not a very, um, it's not a very earth-shaking pattern, perhaps. But when the, the, um, the value of, of these practices is seeing how we are pattern-forming, and then we can find the discrimination to see which patterns are really will cause us anguish or unsatisfactoriness, or make us feel that we actually feel like we're suffering, or actually we do things that make others suffer. So, um, so that's the value of these, even though they seem very simple. Just being aware and recognizing these are tendencies. So what do you do now with the speed bumps? <laughs> I just slow down and go over them. <laughs> so... Um, So in, in craving, um, I was going to mention about addiction. Martine Batchelor, in her book, Let Go, A Buddhist Guide to Breaking Habits, has some pointed stories about grasping, and she has a lot of little examples like this from her life. And, um, and she, um, she, she also has some practices to free oneself from it, from this craving or, or habits. And she specifically addresses addictions. So the next point in this conditioning, <clears throat> in our, um, in our way of going through this, is becoming. And becoming is continuing the cycle of action or thought and emotion. Yes? Oh, we we have an announcement to make. So um, someone is parked in front. Oh, it's me? Oh, (laughs) gee. 
And I and I looked when I got out. So, uh, well, excuse me. <laughs> no, no. So, what a nice policeman. <laughs> he, he didn't give me a ticket or anything. Uh, <laughs> so there was a case of misperception, you know, because I when I parked, I pulled up and I looked at both um, where my car was in front and the back, and I thought I saw a curb in both places, but uh, I didn't. <laughs> Sometimes that happens in life, we just uh, misperceive things. So maybe this is a, a real-life example. Well, how are you going to meet whatever happens, right? <laughs> I don't know. Um, anyway, it was kind of, it was kind of interesting. <laughs> so where was it? I was parked across the street. Yeah. And so when I looked at toward the back, you know, there was a truck behind me and I thought I saw in my rear mirror that I thought I saw the end curb and how close I was to the truck. I mean, I deliberately looked at those things, but uh and I looked at the front and so things like that happen. Actually, that reminds me of another story of, um, of, uh, that, w- that was actually about confusion. Um, although misperception doesn't necessarily mean confusion, but, um, and this is a famous story from the Buddhist text that he's walking along the, a path and he, uh, that some monk is walking along a path and he sees a snake and he gets really frightened and he turns around and runs away and then and then but then he he keeps walking along this path because he's doing walking meditation and every day he sees a snake there and he runs away until finally after about a week it dawns on him like how can the snake be in the same place every time and, um so he gingerly goes a little closer and he sees that it's a rope, it's a coiled rope. So, so the point is like, what's your reaction going to be? How are you going to meet the situation? How are you going to meet what, uh, you had a misperception, but what are you going to do with that? So, um, so Martine's book, uh, specifically addresses addictions, but she it's it's more it's more general, and then she focuses in on addictions. She has some nice practices, and she's coming to the Sati Center this fall uh, um, to uh, to actually give a presentation on her her latest book, which is a a really nice overview of Buddhism as a whole. And uh, she's a I'm I'm. Um, I'm very fond of Martine. She and Stephen Batchelor, her husband, are teachers. I've done a lot of um, workshops and retreats with them, and so I'm uh, and know them well. So I'm I'm fond of them. But uh, they really have a lot to say. Uh, long practice in many traditions. So becoming is continuing this cycle of action and reaction, or emotion. It's conditioned by craving, but with an additional flavor of self-identification around an experience or a judgment or a thought. So, I'm a, it's something like this. I'm a second scoop kind of a person and I'm just going to keep being that way. You know, that's me. It, it starts to fix the sense of self. Um, in, in certain patterns. So this is where habit really takes, really becomes part of our personality. <laughs> you know. of, of course, many times we're not aware that this is going on and this is a problem. I mean, that's, that's a famous from poets and, and writers have said that for, you know, from, from the time that there was writing, but of course the one that's coming to mind right now is Robert Burns. Uh, oh, would the gift that God have given us to see the world as others see us? You know, it's hard to see ourselves, but uh, it's hard to see our patterns. 
But other people can say, oh, that person is usually this way or that way. However, these practices allow us to do that. And dependent origination is kind of a model of how these practices can work with us. So birth, in the, and I will go over the traditional sense if, um, if we have time and you, I mean, we're kind of running out of time because this is a co- complex kind of thing and I, I did really work on the timing, but um, if you want to stay, if, and or whoever wants to stay, I'm happy to talk about the traditional sense too and pass out that other sheet. But birth in, in the traditional way is known as rebirth. But in the moment-by-moment model of dependent origination, it's the solidification of personality and identity. So that's me, you know. We usually think of birth as a discrete event, you know, someone's born at a certain time, at a certain hour, etc. But here birth happens moment by moment. Whenever we crystallize around any experience, any thought, any emotion, anything that comes up in our lives. So sometimes a mindful practice of walking can be very helpful here. So just the physical when you lift your foot, move, lift your leg, move your leg and place your, your feet, that can help us perceive the, a kind of a not-self way of being. Because of course here's another point where dependent origination ties in with uh, the marks of existence which the Buddha taught in, within the Three Noble Truths. And one of the marks of existence is uh, not not self, that we do not have a fixed, solid self. We have conventional selves, yes, we, it's very hard to overcome this because we have this, we have this kind of layer around us, what they call in Zen, this bag of skin. We have this integument that seems to separate us from the world. Uh, and we are kind of together in that way. But, um, but in Buddhism, not-self means there's no fixed, solid self that goes on. We are always changing. That's the other way dependent origination also ties in with that mark of human existence, that everything is impermanent, including us. We really don't get that on a very deep level until we put some effort into it. But, I mean, we can know that intellectually, and I'm sure we're all, we've known people that have, gone from us, that have died, that are no longer with us, but um, it's a little more difficult to bring it home, to bring it home to me. So the walking meditation, just and then simply noting that you're slowing down and actually doing something as simple as walking, like lifting, lifting your leg, moving and placing it in and you don't have to say those words, but just be with the energetic sensor, however it works for you. There are many ways it can work. However, all this doesn't mean that we're just simply passive observers of our lives. We make a choice to be aware, and that's what makes all the difference. When we, Because we're making this choice to look into things, uh, that's already a step. We can see into the process and see see our path step by step whereby we transform this process. Uh, Another contemporary Buddhist um, thinker and writer, Mark Epstein, uh, describes this this not-self way, this doerless doing uh, in his book, Thoughts Without a Thinker. So the last one in this um, model, the last kind of conditioned step, is aging and death. And in the moment-by-moment sense, this is the passing away and disappearance of experience. So that's what we did a little bit tonight, but I suggested in the guided meditation. Uh, Every experience we have... uh, arises and passes away, every thought. 
we can get obsessive and keep going around in the circles and then we think that that's never going to go away. But we are just making that habit. We're just running in that little groove, just running in that little groove, making that little rut. Uh, But we can step out of those ruts. Usually this in the, in the moment-by-moment model, there, there's a little bit of a flavor of loss. Uh, when we pay mindful attention, we sometimes hear the phrase in our minds, I used to be, or it used to be that way. Um, as with any loss for human beings, there's a, there's a bit of longing, and sometimes even a subtle feeling of despair. Sometimes we're, we're even sad when unpleasant experiences stop. Or even when we're glad an unpleasant experience stops, there's a feeling of aversion, of pushing away. So we're just, we're, we're just still in that cycle of reactivity. Um, I never want to feel that again. Where we could simply just mindfully inquire into the conditions that gave rise to the experience. So dependent origination uh, recognizes that uh, the, the other characteristic of life for humans is that there are inner fluctuations because life itself is always moving and changing, impermanence. There's no solid state either out there or in here. And life is like a stream that we're swimming in. And in fact, all things are swimming in. But we are who we are as human beings. You know, we've got all these built-in conditions, and that's fine. We're subject to many outer physical conditions, gravity, and, and we swim in different ways, depending on the conditions. And none of the ways that we swim has to be a problem. Uh, whether we're restless or sleepy or happy or bored or sad or elated, uh, if we don't, especially paying attention to the feeling tone, if we don't, and then clinging or grasping, not pushing things away or holding on to them, if we're just feeling angry, it's just, anger is just like the weather or just like the traffic. It comes and goes, you know. And sometimes there's, there's a reason to be angry uh, and, and that's, that's, that's fine. The thing about noticing these, this conditioning, these tendencies, is that then we can stop and make choices. Even if we have a reason to be angry with some situation or some person, if we just react from just the raw anger, we often don't deal with the situation wisely. So it's when we're unaware of the hard wired drivers of the wheel, like greed, hatred, and delusion, or ignorance, that we get stuck. And that's when we feel unsatisfied, that's when we feel anguish, or suffering even. And that's when our patterns and tapes start playing and just reinforce themselves. But the good news is that we can we know this even without spending a lot of mindful reflection on it, but there are hardwired drivers as well that are different. So our feeling of caring and our confidence in practice and in ourselves and wise reflection, these are a little deeper and harder to contact, but they take some practice effort. And that's where mindfulness itself is a great ally because we can depend on mindfulness in any situation. And I am not saying it's easy, um, and no, no one I know does. But with practice it does become easier to stay in touch with our fundamental qualities of caring and wisdom, compassion. So all of this, I'm going to wrap this up because it's time, but it's a little heady. But the practice is really not analytical at all, at all. It's just being with the mindfulness. And in some of the last words that the Buddha spoke to his followers when he was on his deathbed, 
from the Diga Nikaya, be heedful, don't be heedless. So with mindfulness, we can keep following that path and keep opening our hearts and minds. So I really appreciate your attention, especially through the little interruption. So, and I think, um, I want to say, please use anything you feel that's helpful in this talk and just um, don't bother with anything that hasn't been helpful. Um, As Buddha Dasa says, a teacher can only point out how things are, but the knowing, the understanding, and the practice are the responsibility of the practitioners. And then one last quote from Zen Master Dogen, actualizing from his poem, it's called Actualizing the Fundamental Point. To follow the Buddha way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. When the self is forgotten, everything else appears. So thank you. And um, I will close with a short dedication and invite any of those who do want a little background on the um, Tibetan image and want to take home the... um, the traditional wheel terminology. Um, You can come up after uh, the dedication. So, settling back after all these words, just for a moment. And wishing ourselves and all beings happiness, ease, peace of mind and heart.